Will you take a moment and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6? I'll be reading from verses 1 to 23. Uh, please read with me the passage in which today's gospel lesson is based. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bela of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How is the king of Israel how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will, celebrate, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will, be, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death.
and this is God's word. I want to welcome everybody here, our first in-person service, some of you here for the first time. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, it's, an, it's an amazing thing to be able to see so many people um, after 15 months of not being able to see any of you here. Must be an amazing thing for those of you who've been here to see some of the changes that we've made in our building. And um, I'm grateful for you to be able to bear with us as we continue on in our worship. Now, today we get to a passage that's really challenging. It's really challenging. I mean, they're all challenging, right? But it's really challenging because most of the people who need to get this assume it's not for them. And so, in a sense, we all need to pay attention. We all need to pay attention today. Now, uh, you need to know the ark was a central piece of furniture in the tabernacle, in this ancient place of worship, because there resided the heavy brilliance of God, the Shekinah of glory of God. In Hebrew, that word is kavod. It's the glory, the kavod glory of God. That's what David was after. He's king now, and he's after the glory of God. He needed the glory of God. He wanted the glory of God. And I'm going to submit to you, we need it too. There are three things we're going to look at today. One, our need for the presence, the glory of God. Two, the problem with the presence or glory of God. And lastly, the provision, God's provision in his presence. First, we're going to look at the need. Why did David want the ark? The first five verses of this passage, it provides a little bit of context. You see, the Philistines, they were the enemies of the Israelites. They captured the ark decades prior to even David being king. And so the ark was lost. And even though it was sent back to the Israelites, for decades it was kept in a very remote place on the outskirts of Jerusalem called Kirith Jerem. And uh, it was not in the tabernacle. It was not in the center part where it belonged. David is now king, and he established uh, the capital at Jerusalem. So he brought the tabernacle to Jerusalem, and now he wants to bring the ark to Jerusalem. He wants to bring the ark to the center place. Why? One, he wanted God to be central to all of his people, to his society, to the culture. He wanted the presence of God to shape the culture of that society. And two, it was much more personal than that, Psalm 27. David writes what? One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in the temple. In other words, David was a leader. David is a king, but he knew, as powerful as he was, he knew that if he did not have the intimate experience of spiritual reality, he was never going to make it in life. Now, why did he need it? I mean, God is everywhere, right? God is everywhere. Why did David need the ark there? The ark represented the face of God, the immediate presence of God, the Shekinah glory presence of God. And David knew to experience real spiritual reality, in order to experience that, he needed the ark there. Now, we're going to get a little bit more practical than that. It's one thing. It's one thing to believe that God loves you. It's one thing to believe that God is gracious. It's one thing to believe uh, that God deeply approves of you, but that's all intellectual. That's all cognitive. It stays here. Simply knowing these truths are not going to shape you with the foundations that you need to make it through all the valleys of life. Only if God's approval 
Only if God's love is more spiritually real to you than anyone else's approval, than anyone else's love, will you be able to not care what people say about you. That's what I mean by spiritual reality. Now listen, if you say, I believe God loves me, I know God loves me, but then you're just devastated by people when they confront you. You're just devastated. You're just so angry by their critique of you. No matter which way it comes to you, then God's love is not spiritually real. God's glory, his kavod glory, glory is like, it's like weight. It's like, it's like there's no real weight if the criticism of other people and their lack of approval for you is more important than God's love for you. That means that God's love, his presence is not heavy. It doesn't outweigh other things in your life. David knew that if he had the intimacy with God, then he will have a joy that's not based on circumstances. It will not based on whatever people think of him. And it won't dissolve when there's trouble. It won't go away when he's suffering, but only gets deeper and stronger the worse things get. And so he says, I want to gaze on the beauty of God. I want to see his face. I want to come to God. I need God for God, not for things. Then I will become more of myself. That's why we need his glory. It's why David wanted the ark. Now, there's a problem with that. It's the second point. How did the ark get lost in the first place? Here's how it goes down. You got Hophni. You got Phinehas. They're the two sons of the high priest Eli at that time, who was in charge of the tabernacle. But Hophni and Phinehas, they were corrupt. They were evil. They embezzled. Even though Phinehas was married, it says they seduced women. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, when the Israelites went out to battle against their enemies, the Philistines, they carried the ark into the camp. And they had done this in the past, and they would devastate, they would rout their enemies. But they carried the ark into the camp, and this time they get slaughtered. And the ark gets taken away. It gets captured. And so the glory of God that represents the face of God, the presence of God, the ark is captured, goes away. Phineas's wife is pregnant, and he know, she knows that the presence of God has departed from them. And so she names, in that moment she's giving birth to her child, she names her child Ichabod, which means Ichavod, no glory. The glory of God has departed. And then she dies. But every time these enemies put the ark in one of their temples, they would find the next morning the statue of their own god kind of found on its face. And every time the Philistines put the ark in one of their towns, plagues would rout the people, tumors would break out everywhere until they said, look, get this thing away from us. Get rid of, we need to get rid of this thing. And so what did they do? In great fear, they placed this ark on an ox cart without a driver, and they just basically sent it back. They said, wherever you came from, go back. Of course, when the cart got to Israel, to this place, this remote place called Beth Shemesh, the men said, hey, it's the ark. Let's look inside. They opened up the top. Seventy people died. So they left the ark alone for 20 years. And now David brings about 30,000 men together to bring the ark back. They put the ark on an ox cart. And there were men that walked nearby to guard it. We had Ohio in front and Uzzah. And then you get to verse 6. They're on a hill, 
and the oxen carrying the ark stumble. The ark is about to fall to the ground, so Uzzah instinctively puts out his hand to stop the ark from hitting the ground, and instantly he's killed. There are thousands of people celebrating, playing music, praising. It's a David is praising with all his might. And then all of a sudden, in an instant, everything stops. And now, verse 8, David is angry. Verse 9, he's afraid. And now he's, now, there are people here who are thinking, where is the grace of God that Metro loves to talk about? I don't see it in this passage so far. So we need to deal with this. We need to deal with this for several reasons. One, uh, it's in the Bible. A lot of people overlook, and they, they don't like to preach on this passage. But it's in the Bible, and that means that there's a purpose to it. Two, it's because a lot of people say, this is the reason why I don't like the God of the Bible. This is the reason why I don't believe in God. He's always vindictive. He's always so angry. There are people uh, here, God has been kind of distant from them on the periphery, much like the ark. But as you come close, as you come into the church after being away for a while, you come close and you start to kind of dabble in the context of Christian community again. Sometimes you rub against somebody and you're just completely put off. You don't like what someone said to you. You don't like what someone critiques about you. You don't like someone's directive towards you. It's very off-putting. And it's kind of like, how do I reconcile this great love of God that's preached and also oftentimes the critique that I receive? How am I supposed to handle that? Now, I'm going to give you a couple of clues to start. The Bible gives us some clues as to how to handle the ark. One, it had to be covered. Two, it's supposed to be carried. Right, this was placed on a cart, right? It's supposed to be carried. The ark had these golden rings on the side where poles are supposed to slide in and four men, that's the third rule, the specific types of men, they're supposed to be priests that are trained for this work of carrying the ark. Lastly, you're not supposed to touch it. You're supposed to never touch the ark. In this passage, every one of those rules were violated. They were disregarded. Now, some of you are thinking, there it is. I knew it. Christianity, it's all about following the rules. But think about this. When the ark was placed on the cart in the first place, people had to touch it, and no one died. Why did only Uzzah die? And I want to submit to you that Uzzah isn't dead simply because he broke the rules. That's just the result. There's a deeper cause it was a deeper violation. What is the ark? The ark was a, a chest, a wooden chest, about four feet long. And uh, it's a wooden box overlaid with gold. The top slab was made of pure gold, and it was called the mercy seat. And uh, you had these two golden angels, these cherubim that were facing each other over the seat. They were, the ark was always veiled. It was always covered. And only one man, one time a year, would enter into the back area of the temple. He's called the high priest. He could only enter once a year and only through a blood sacrifice. Why? That's how you approach the face of God. That's how you approach the mercy seat of God, through a blood sacrifice. But why? It's because there's a chasm. There's a chasm that exists between God and man because of sin, because of our sin. The Ark of the Covenant is God's way of saying that there is a very great rift, a chasm, a sin debt between humanity and God. And you can't bridge it with your goodness. You can't bridge it just by striving by, with your morality, by serving hard. 
It needs payment. It needs blood. It needs death. It needs atoning for. Uzzah died because he broke a rule, yes, but why did he break the rule? He was trying to do a good thing. I mean, he was trying to do a noble thing for God. He was trying to protect the ark. He was trying to protect God in a sense. What did he do? And here it is. Uzzah didn't understand the depth of that chasm, how wide that rift is. He didn't understand that it could only be bridged through an atoning sacrifice. You can't just walk up, and that's why the text says, because of his irreverence. His irreverence, it's not that God's saying, oh, I'm insulted, I'm going to kill you. No, that's not what happened. God had set up particular, essentially, you want to see the face of God, but God says, you can't see my face. You want to see the brilliance of God. God says, you can't see my brilliance. Not because, you know, I'm better than you, although he is. Not because he's holier than you, although he is. He says, my brilliance is so bright. My holiness is so holy. You ever look at the sun? It hurts your eyes. Imagine walking into the sun. You won't even get there. You're consumed. He says, my brilliance and my beauty are so brilliant, so beautiful, that it will just consume anything in its way. It will consume anything that is not holy. It will consume anything that is less beautiful. Uzzah didn't understand the chasm. His nobility, he thought, was enough. His goodness, he thought, was enough. That's what killed him. And it's actually killing us. You know why? Because there are people in the church right now who think every sermon is about everybody else but them. Or... Because of their goodness, because you grew up in the church, you act as if you deserve a pass. Like, I know I'm a sinner, I do some things wrong, but I deserve a pass. You don't see the chasm. And it's very easy to spot these types of people, right? If you listen around, if you are easily offended, if you're always angry at somebody in the church, if you're always saying, you know, this person is unjust, this person is uh, oppressive, if you're bitter and you're backbiting and you're gossiping, you know, what, you know what you're doing? You're saying, I get it, I'm a sinner, but I'm not like that person. I'm not like them. I would never, I would never be like that. You believe you're more noble. You don't see how wide that chasm is. Uzzah grew up knowing about the chasm. But he either didn't believe how wide the chasm was or he just didn't think he was bad enough, or he thought his goodness was enough. It's a very, very small view of the chasm. He's thinking, I'm going to do a good thing for God. It's going to be fine. Why did he put his hand out? The Bible says, the Bible says we naturally do this. We instinctively do this. We instinctively think against the truth about our own sin, how deep that sin is, how deep our sinfulness is, how, how core it is to our lives. Uzzah couldn't believe that, that God would rather the ark touch the ground. He's looking, oh, the ground, it's dirty. I need to grab it before it hits the ground. God would rather the ark touch the ground than touch your hand. Think about it. The soil is good. It does exactly what God designed the soil to do. You plant something in it, and it grows. Soil didn't sin. But do you or I live the way we were designed? 
Do you or I live reflecting the image of God? No. We're broken images of God. We profess to know about the gap, but like Uzzah, we despise it. We don't want to hear about it. We don't really internalize it. We avoid it. We fight it. You know how you know? When your friend, or those of you who are married, when your spouse calls you out, you never say upon hearing, I mean, usually it's not, they don't usually say it the nicest way. I get it. You know, it's, it's not what you said. It's, it's the way you said it. We always say that, right? But the reality is, we don't like the truth. I mean, you could be really nice about it, right? What do we do? We never say, oh, I see your love for me. You want to rescue me from my sinfulness and my pride. No, we judge right back. We get defensive. We resist. We fight. We justify ourselves. We try to kind of meander or navigate our way around it, right? The Bible says what we're doing is the same thing that Uzzah was doing in his own heart. We tend to do good things to justify our sinfulness. We tend to do good things to cover over our sinfulness. When Uzzah put out his hand, it showed he didn't get the chasm. And the need for a sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice by God's sheer grace. Uzzah died because the natural disposition of our hearts is to avoid the truth of our sin, to despise the truth of our sin, to neglect the truth of our sin, to resist the truth of our sin, to fight against the truth of our sin. And seeing this, now David is kind of, he's part of this, he's watching, it woke him up. And if he could wake up David amidst thousands of people celebrating and praising mayhem and confusion, surely it can wake us up right now in our silence. Here's a question. What side of the gap do you think you reside in? We tend to judge everyone else. Every sermon is for everyone else. What side of the gap are you on? Uzzah didn't see himself as on the other side of the gap, the sin side of the gap, and it ruined him. Here's an example. If you're moral, if you consider yourself a good person, I mean, nobody here is like this like raging lunatic, right? I mean, we're all, I mean, but the sin makes us insane. So I guess in, kind of, in a way, we kind of all are, right? But the Bible, no one's going to sit here and say, we're all going to say, well, you know, I know this person. They're good people, right? If you're a moral person, if you're a good person, if you're a religious person, and you actually live up to your standards and life goes well for you, that's going to make you proud. It's going to make you arrogant. And the reason is because you earned it. You're going to be bitter. You're going to, be, you're going to um, compare yourself with other people. You're going to be jealous. You're going to pick and choose who you want to hang with, who you're going to be good to, especially around people who challenge you and challenge that goodness, especially around people who disagree with you. It's dehumanizing. You know why? because you become less loving, you're less kind, you're more angry, you become more arrogant, you're less human than you were designed. You're dehumanized, you see? Or you're gonna become more bitter, more jealous if you feel like you've lived up to the standards and life doesn't go well. That's gonna make you angry. Or if you haven't been able to live up to the moral standards that you have, you're gonna be crippled by guilt, crippled by shame, and then you're going to be bitter and jealous towards people who are able to live successfully that way. Why? Because you're still living your life based on works when you should be living your life based on God's sheer grace. And God is saying, you have to wake up. you got to wake up. David woke up, 
and he finally sees the chasm. But in this passage, he's able to see God's provision for that chasm. That's the last point. Verse 8, he's angry because he's saying, I want God in my life. I'm pursuing God in my life. Verse 9, David becomes afraid and he says, then how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? How can I bridge that chasm? And then he's able to get it. He's staring down that chasm. Friends, some of you, you've been broken by your past. Some of you are broken by your present life. Because what that's saying, you're seeing the chasm. You see the chasm. You're starting to get it, but you're missing something. You need to see God's provision for that chasm. Yes, Uzzah died right by the ark, but the ark is a mere representative. It's a mere representation. It merely points to the glory of God. It isn't the glory of God. It points to the kavod, glory, presence of God. But it also points to the mercy of God. You see that slab of gold that the angels were pointing towards each other, right there is where God resided. It was known as the mercy seat. When David left the ark after Uzzah died, he left it at this person's house named Obed-Edom. It was kept there. Obed-Edom the Gittite, which means that he was living in Israel, but he was an immigrant. He was a foreigner. Now, when the Philistines had captured the ark, tumors broke out. When the ark got wheeled over to Israel in Beth Shemesh, 70 people died. When Uzzah tried to do the good thing and touched the ark, he died. But these guys are thinking, David is thinking, Obed-Edom doesn't stand a chance. He's from an enemy country. He's a foreigner. He's not Israelite. What does he possibly know? What could he possibly have? He doesn't stand a chance here. But verse 11, the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. In fact, later they say that everything he has is blessed. Obed-Edom the Gittite means he was from Gath. You know what's from Gath? Goliath was from Gath. So he's literally an enemy. He's literally a foreigner. But he descended from the line of priests called the Levites. And so his name actually means neighboring servant. You know what that means? If you're from a line of priests, you understand the gap. You understand the chasm. You understand the holiness of God. Priests understand the need for a sacrifice. That's what they did. And so Obed-Edom stands in the gap. He offers himself in a way, in a sense, and he represents the people to bring back the ark. And if you think about it, if Obed-Edom a sinner, an enemy, a foreigner, a foreigner to Israel. If he can get it, if he can experience the presence of God, if he can be blessed by God, that means anybody can be blessed by God. What is our provision? How do we experience that? In verse 13, David gets it. So what does the king do? The king, it says the king comes down and he brings the ark back. After six steps, he and the procession, they stop, and he makes the sacrifice like a priest. David is a prophet. David is a priest. David is a king. But centuries later, there will be another prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ, the great high priest, the perfect high priest, 
and on the cross so that we would have the access. We would be able to gaze on the beauty of, of God. What David so desired, Jesus Christ objectively, historically, cosmically, spiritually, personally did the work of the ultimate high priest by what, doing what? He was a greater Obed-Edom. He sacrificed himself. And he was the greater Uzzah. On the cross, he was the greater Obed-Edom because he sacrificed himself. He was the greater Uzzah because he absorbed the full wrath of God on the cross. There he suffered. There was blood. There is the atonement. There is the sweat and the tears and the agony and the torture and the pain. Jesus Christ, the king, came down himself and sacrificed himself. David came down and offered a sacrifice, and he got to dance for joy with joy. Jesus Christ is the king, the ultimate king who came down, offered himself, sacrificed himself, paid for our sins. It's why we call him the perfect great high priest. David got it. David gets it. He sees the chasm. He gets the chasm. He catches through Obed-Edom a glimpse of the gospel that we now see through Jesus in full. One thing I ask, one thing I seek, that I might gaze on the beauty of God. How do we gaze on the beauty of God? We look at Jesus. Jesus Christ, the great king, the great high priest, who not only offered a sacrifice, but became the sacrifice, who not only sacrificed for our sins, but became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. I didn't say that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that. He bridged the gap. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I have been forsaken I've lost the glory of God. The glory of God has departed from me. In other words, just like Phineas' wife, who saw the glory of God depart, Jesus Christ on the cross, bleeding and dying for his people. Holy, holy, holy was Jesus. And yet he cries out, I've lost the presence of God. I am the ultimate ikavod. I got the chasm so that you would get the bridge. I got the suffering. I got the wrath so that you would be reconciled. I got the death. I became the ultimate Uzzah so that you would be blessed with the presence of God in your life. You would have access to Jesus. You would have access to God, and that gives joy. The wrath of God is satisfied. God's love satisfies his own justice and if you take that in, if you really believe it, just like that, if it's personal to you, look at the text. Before David got it, he's leading a procession, but he doesn't see the chasm. It left him angry and afraid. And many of us here are living angry and afraid, angry at other people because we can't take the critique, afraid of the disapproval of other people because that is more weighty than the presence of God. But now David gets it. How do you know? He's dancing. He's practically naked. His wife, Michal, says... You are undignified. You are embarrassing. It says the wife despised him. Kings don't do that. David says, I don't care about the criticism. Why? Because when you experience real spiritual reality, the love of God becomes so real in your life, you stop caring. It outweighs the love of other people. It outweighs the approval of other people. You stop caring about what people think about you. The love of God shapes you through your brokenness, 
And this broken experience, the love of God will shape you to not only see the chasm, but see the sacrifice of Jesus. There is the approval that you need. The only approval that you need. There is the validation. The only validation that you need. Will that be more real to you? Will it outweigh any other love in your life? Will it outweigh any other desire or pursuit in your life? To the degree that you sense how much you are loved, like David, you will dance. Let's pray together.